Hello and welcome to The Overtake. I'm your host, John Bazella, the President and CEO of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. This podcast is about the automotive industry and the people, events, and policies that shape it, an industry that is constantly changing, evolving, and innovating. This is nothing new. The auto industry has always been innovating. Throughout history, we've seen car companies release new models year after year, always with the latest cutting-edge technologies and features. Today, I am very excited to be talking about one of the most discussed and often misunderstood new technologies in the automotive industry today, automated vehicles, or AVs. Rob Grant, Vice President of Government Affairs at Cruise, is here to join me. Cruise is a company headquartered in San Francisco that designs AV software and hardware that can integrate with vehicles. At Cruise, Rob spearheads legislative, regulatory, and policy priorities in the United States and abroad. He brings decades of experience working in and with government, including in the U.S. Senate, the Department of Treasury, and the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Rob, welcome to The Overtake. Very pleased to be here, and and as always, very pleased to be talking with you. So you kind of operate in three worlds, kind of the policy world, the political world, and the world of cutting-edge technology. So how did you find yourself working for a company that's focused on automated vehicles? Over the course of my career, I've really seen one constant thread that's led me to where I am today. And, and that's my desire to work on unique problems that don't really fit into the current landscape of regulatory perspectives. How do we take new innovations, new ways of thinking, and how do we put some guardrails on them in a way that that doesn't hinder innovation, but helps provide you know, pathways forward that balance the need for regulatory intervention with new technology. Yeah. You know, I really love that balancing that you're talking about because I think it's really important because that is really how we can ensure these benefits, right? And I want to get into the benefits, uh, especially the benefits of highly automated vehicles in a in a moment. But, you know, I think we should do some AV 101, for lack of a better term, you know, because, you know, I'm sure there's some listeners who, you know, who, like I do, you know, drive a lot and, you know, they see the roads populated with all sorts of cars, you know, and I think about, you know, my dream car, the 1966 Shelby, I would love to drive that someday soon. And you can see that if you're lucky on the road today, but you can also see much more vehicles with, with much uh, more modern technology and more automated features. So, how do we how do we think about this mix of different vehicles, and how do we characterize them in ways that we and the regulators understand? You know, new technology. Great question. And first of all, the Shelby is a beautiful vehicle. So, I, I hope one day to to see you riding around in one and and see that big smile on your face when you're in it. Yeah. So that it's. Out on the roads today, you do see a large variety of technology and vehicles. And that's really what we're talking about here is how do you, if you're a member of the public or a regulator, kind of sift through what are the various levels of technology in the different vehicles that are out there? And so there has been developed a system by the Society of Automotive Engineers, SAE for short, that 
a, a lot of regulators and, and consumers can rely on to understand the different levels of technology in vehicles. And, and this is a, a sixth kind of level system that tells you level zero to level five, how much automation technology is in your vehicle. And in short, level zero means no automation. There's zero autonomy. The driver performs everything in the vehicle. Level one, some driver assistance technology, but, but most of the features are, are fairly known and well used at this point. Something like an early version of cruise control. And then you have partial automation, which is level two. And this is where you start to see a lot of the new innovation that, that automakers and manufacturers are putting out there. This includes adaptive cruise control, such things as emergency braking, forward warning collision systems. And so the vehicle has some of these automated functions in it, but the driving task is really regulated to the human uh, behind the wheel, and, and they're expected to monitor that environment at all times. And now what you're starting to see in, in places around the world is what they call level three, this conditional automation. The driver is still in the vehicle and it's a necessity to have that person there, but it's not required to monitor the environment at all times. So the driver has to be ready to take control of the vehicle at a moment's notice, but the vehicle really is performing most of what we consider our driving tasks, right? Changing lanes, taking turns, stopping for red lights or stop signs, things of that nature. Now, what Cruise is focused on are the next two levels of automation, levels four and level five, which are considered high automation or full automation. And this is where the vehicle does all the driving functions and there is no driver in the vehicle. So there is no human to fall back upon. The difference between level four and level five real quickly is that level four is always designed to work in a confined geographic area or under only certain conditions, such that if it's heavy snow and your vehicle can't operate in heavy snow as a high automation vehicle, then the vehicle will not operate in those conditions. Level five, that's the holy grail of what this industry is, is going for. And that is a vehicle that can operate by itself in any condition, in any geography at any time. Right. And so my, my 66 Shelby is a zero. And the again, the vehicles that Cruise has operating on roads in San Francisco today would be level four or level Correct. five vehicles. Yes. Uh, level level four. four. Our vehicles only work in a defined geographic area and they can't operate in conditions like heavy snow or hurricane-like winds or something like that. Got it. And so, okay. So why, why automated vehicles? What's wrong with the driver? What is the benefit to consumers or frankly, to the public of highly automated vehicles? So, so I would say there's nothing wrong with drivers as, as people, but really the, the purpose behind automated vehicles, we see it as, as threefold. So one, we believe that automated vehicles can bring a new level of safety to consumers out on the road. Two, we believe that their freedom that we're both talking about, the freedom to get into that car, hop on the open road, go where, where life takes you. And that means opening up uh, the ability to hop in that car and go wherever you want to folks that traditionally might not be able to get into a vehicle. Someone who's blind, someone who might have or low vision or who might have a paralysis of certain kinds. And then thirdly, for us, one of the reasons to do this is we think AVs can be at the forefront of a transition to electric vehicles. In the transportation sector, that is the sector that contributes 
almost 40% of greenhouse gas emissions on the roads. It's the single largest carbon emitter in the U.S. And so we think by going electric through AVs that we can get at this issue of climate change. So the idea of, of how AVs might help electrification, help me understand that a little bit. You see both AV investments, more, more AV technology coming into the marketplace and also EV technology. How do the two things support each other? Sure. There, there's an, an aspirational reason for it, as well as a business reason for it, as well as a technical reason for it. We do see at Cruise climate change as a real issue, the environment, sustainability. These are things that, that are moving in the wrong direction. They're causing harm to folks in terms of the air they breathe. We've seen it out here in San Francisco. Back in October, I woke up to an orange sky right? Never thought I'd see that. I thought I was on Mars and, and perhaps still dreaming. So we're seeing those real world effects. We see it in study after study about the inequities uh, of certain communities to the transportation sector and the way that that's been built out. And so we want to provide cleaner air to, to all residents, to all people, to all communities. The business reason is going forward, we think consumers really will see the benefits of electric vehicles in terms of lower maintenance costs, in terms of increased access, particularly as electric vehicles roll out in uh, controlled ride hail fleets. So, you know, for crews, one of the things that we see as a potential for going a EV is opening up EVs to more and more people. Perhaps those who are a little reluctant to buy an EV, can't perhaps afford one, don't have a place to charge it. So we think that there is a community out there that wants to go electric to to see those climate change benefits and sustainability benefits, but isn't really able to right now. The technical reason is EVs just, as you know, John, have less parts. And so when you're trying to automate a vehicle and you're tying in your electrical sensors, you're tying in your control and planning motions from an AV computer stack and the the brain, so to speak, to the arms and legs, the wheels and the powertrain and all that, less parts makes it easier to do that. And so I think for us, the technical reason is it's actually easier to operate an AV when it's an EV. And going back to uh, the original point as well, it's cheaper to do so. It's cheaper to maintain. So there are many reasons to go EV, but first and foremost for us, it was to address this issue of climate change. You're right. I mean, it is it is a challenge that the the auto industry and the transportation sector has to take on. So you have, Cruise has a fleet of highly automated vehicles moving around San Francisco as we speak. So clearly one of the reasons is you're continuing to test and prove out this technology, but also you know, you're building a business. And so where do you think the near-term business opportunity is for crews? Short-term, the, the use cases that we plan to invest in and roll out to consumers include ride hail and delivery. We see an immediate use case with the delivery of goods. That can be anything from packages to groceries to medicine, even perhaps helping folks get their vaccines at home. But long-term, we think there are many, many more uses available for this technology. And I think that's one of the things that, that goes understated about this industry. And I know that's, that's a difficult thing to say, given the attention the industry gets. But you know, what we're doing here in terms of machine learning, in terms of 
understanding the world through the new powers of perception with LIDAR and advanced cameras and inertial measurement units and short-term radars and putting that all together and understanding our environment and predicting what's happening in that environment, you can only imagine there are a lot of potential uses for that. And I think we're starting to see that. You know, you talked about LIDAR and other technologies. What are some of the building blocks of this technology? Yeah. So some of the building blocks we've referenced a little bit. So LIDAR is one of them. So LIDAR stands for light detection and range. And basically what happens with the LIDAR sensor is it emits a laser, a beam of light out into the open space and it's rotating. So it's going in 360 degrees. And depending upon what it hits, it can give you a three-dimensional map of everything that's around you both in terms of what's solid, what's what's moving, what's not solid, based upon the way the light reflects back. When you combine that information with a series of high-resolution cameras that we have and many other developers have on the vehicle, and then you add in radar, which really helps determine density and speed of things moving in or away from you, you get this amazing sight, so to speak beyond what a human is capable of, because you're seeing things 360 degrees 100% of the time. Every single second that the vehicle is moving or millisecond the vehicle is moving, it is taking in this 360 degree view of everything that's happening around it. And so once all that information gets into the computer, it then starts to assign classifications of what's happening. And so this is where the vehicle then says, okay, what I'm seeing through the combination of these sensors, that's a stoplight, that's a tree, that's a person. And then you add in the machine learning aspect of what's going on. And so not only does the computer understand how to classify it, but then it starts to predict. So, okay, that light is red. When I see it move green, I can predict that I should move forward. Here is a pedestrian that's walking on the side based upon the way their shoulders are, the speed at which they're moving and the direction at which they're going. I know they're on the opposite side of the street walking away from the vehicle, right? And then so once the machine has now seen everything, has classified everything, has predicted where everything around it is going to go, it then can plan its motion safely through that scene. And this happens time and time and time, every second on the road. So the vehicle is constantly updating itself, surrounding itself with information and to make the best decision how to move safely forward through everything. And so as you, as you can imagine, that is far beyond what a human is doing in every second that, it, that that person is on the road. And so this is where we think when vehicles are out there, they'll be able to perform more safely than humans because it will be constantly aware it will be seeing more than anything that a human can see, and it will be able to make predictions as good or better than a human as to what's going on around it. So not only will the, the vehicle and the people or occupants inside that vehicle be safer, but so will everyone else around it. This is fascinating because you've said that this technology is going to perform better than I can as a driver. It seems to me that you know we're, we're moving quickly with this technology, perhaps ahead of where the regulator is. As I understand automotive regulation, it's based on hands and and feet and eyes and body position. And so what we've done here is we've replaced 
those things with the software and the perception technologies that you've described, how is it that we assure the public that in fact, this is as good or better than a human driver? I, I think that that is really at the heart of the efforts that in my role at Cruise as the head of regulatory and policy that I'm most focused on, John, because if we don't have public trust, and I mean that both from the consumer end and from the regulatory end, I think this technology kind of stalls, not in terms of the technological advancements, those will continue to happen, but it stalls in getting out to the public, getting out on the streets, making those streets safer, making that air cleaner through electric vehicles, opening up the accessibility that we've talked about. And so I really think this is the fundamental challenge for folks in this industry right now. And so one of the ways that we've been trying to engage the government, and, and it's worked to date, and we hope to see more successful efforts going forward in the next few years, is this industry has gone to Congress and has gone to the Department of Transportation and said, we would love to work with you to develop a framework going forward, a framework that can build that trust that we're both referencing. Because right now, there isn't a lot of guardrails on the industry. And so I think, I think this is kind of a misnomer about the industry is we are up in front of Congress asking to be regulated. We're not asking for a handout, by the way. In everything that we've asked for, there is no money here. This is something that we're asking for without you know, ties to, to, to money or, or ties to investment from the government. I think what we're asking for is, is if we can find that balance between regulation and innovation, if we can find that way that whether it's Congress or the Department of Transportation and NHTSA can feel comfortable with what we're putting out in the road, can get information can understand what we're doing as developers and manufacturers, I think that only adheres to our benefit in terms of consumers saying, okay, this is a technology I can trust. Right. So it sounds like what we, what we really need to be about is we're, we're, we're effectively modernizing these rules, right, to ensure safety as we move this new technology into the fleet. Don't you need data to do that? And where does the data come from to modernize these rules? Absolutely. I think, I think data is the key to all of this. And so one of the things that, that, that we think regulators can really benefit from is data from multiple vehicles, multiple systems being in multiple cities. But right now, that's very difficult to do, particularly with some of the new innovative ways that cars and vehicles can be designed once you remove the driver from them. An application is made by a manufacturer to NHTSA that says, my vehicle can't meet the current standards, but I can show you different ways that safety of the vehicle is still just as safe as any vehicle that can meet that standard. And you have to show that. You literally have to show proof of that. And then the government will say, you can go forward and put a limited number of these vehicles. However, the limit on the number of that vehicles is so low. It's 2,500. And this is a number set by Congress almost 50 years ago, that the data that you can get from it is limited. And if data is really what you need to inform a new standard, that number needs to go higher. That way we can put out vehicles in a number, still limited. It's not going to be an infinite number. It'll be limited, but be greater. And that will allow information to flow in faster. And that information will be shared with the government. And then we can all make informed 
decisions about how that regulatory standard should change given these new type of vehicles. So there is no diminishment in safety, but there is an increase in data being shared with the government. And that informs how these new rules will move and go forward. And so that is ultimately, I think, how we get from where we are today to where we'll be 10 years from now when I really see these vehicles being out there and used in full force. Yeah. So you're to- what you're talking about here is an actual regulatory process in the interim that assures safety to be able to create data that informs the agencies as they really rewrite the rules going forward for the next phase of uh, of automation. So I that 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 makes a lot of sense to me, but I also what are the states doing? Yeah, so it's a it's a really unique system that we have here in the US. It's worked for 250 plus years. It's this system of federalism. So the federal government sets standards, safety standards for each vehicle. And this is a baseline that all manufacturers must meet. Now, the manufacturers certify to the government that those standards that they've set for vehicle safety have been met, and then these vehicles can go on the road. Now, traditionally, then states have the role of licensing the driver, right? So we've all gone to the DMV, whether that experience has been a positive one or a negative one, I'll let each listener determine. But here in California, just like everywhere else, if I want to drive a vehicle, I can buy a vehicle that's been certified by the federal government. But before I can drive it, I need to get a driver's license. And so the state regulates that aspect and it always has. And so states do have a role. I want to come back to this question of, of regulation and innovation. But don't we get into a little bit of confusion when the software is the driver? I mean, do could we foresee some confusion where states in their desire to license the quote driver unquote might also be affecting the uh, operating characteristics and the design uh, of a vehicle. One of the things that we've as an industry and and crews individually has been working with, with Congress on over the last few years is to ensure that there is this cleaner line of separation between the, the the role of the states and the role of the federal government. What we're seeking is to reestablish that line basically along traditional aspects, which is if it's related to design, construction, performance, that that is a, a federal role. If it is related to traditional state roles of insurance, compliance with local laws, understanding where vehicles are going to be, if they want to operate as a ride hail. Ride hailing is generally regulated at the state level, that they should have you know, rules that they follow for operating in, in that use case. And so I think, I think one of the asks for our, our federal framework is, is to clarify those roles over again as this technology sorts to blend the driver and the vehicle. You know, I noticed that that you received permission recently from the state of California to do something groundbreaking. Why did you have to go to the state of California if the federal government is where automotive regulation normally happens? And so one of the reasons that we had to go to the state is the state of California, always forward-leaning, always forward-looking, about 10 years ago, had set up a system where if you were going to test vehicles with high automation on their streets, you had to go to their DMV 
and and share with them a few things and 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 certify to them a few things about what your vehicle is doing on that. What happened recently is really exciting. I mean, this is kind of like groundbreaking for the industry. Is California DMV said, Cruz, you have proven to us that you are capable of operating without a driver in your vehicle in the city of San Francisco. So they gave us approval to test fully driverless level four system on the public roads of the city of San Francisco, which is one of the most difficult operating environments for any vehicle, drivered or driverless, to operate in. And so back in November, we were able to perform our first public road tests with nobody in the car. And so we were, we were celebrating that this is a, it's a milestone. It's a small step to some, but it's a big step for the industry. So that, that's what happened. We're very proud of it. We know that others have, have done the same thing in, in different places, and I commend them as well, and there will be more to come. And so I think as an industry, we're starting to see real movement towards all that promise and potential that we've talked about. Yeah. So tell me about the, about the origin, the cruise origin. What type of vehicle is that? What is it for folks who haven't seen it? Maybe you could even describe it. Sure. The origin is our new purpose-built vehicle. It is, we believe, the first vehicle built from the ground up, from the from the tires to the roof, from bumper to bumper, and everything in between, designed to be a fully autonomous level four system. The vehicle itself has no steering wheel, has no brakes, has no traditional operator controls. I should say, has no brake pedals, just to be make sure that people understand what I'm saying. It is about the size of a small SUV, but it has no kind of hood or front windshield that looks like a traditional SUV. Rather, it kind of looks like a rectangle that's fully formed out and that has the ability to hold six passengers on the inside. So it has doors that open like elevator doors. And once you walk in, you can sit on either side, forwards or backwards. It can hold up to six people, which we think is really important. We really do think reducing the number of single occupancy vehicle trips is important to reducing our impact on the environment and to reducing congestion on the roads. It's got sliding doors that you can walk in. You can exit or egress on either side of the vehicle. Uh, you can sit forwards or backwards. Everything in it, including the sensors, including what what is the compute system, is designed to be safe. There are redundant systems for each, so there'll be two compute systems in the vehicle. In case the initial compute system fails, we have a backup one. So it, it's designed to be the safest, we think, vehicle on the road in a long time. And so we go into production in this vehicle late next year. And so it will be the first vehicle produced in large numbers of this kind anywhere in the world. And we're very proud of that. Our partners, Honda and GM, have really done a wonderful job in working with us to get this vehicle to this production level. That's extremely exciting. And and, and I, I, I like this idea of convergence between you know cutting edge software development as well as you know, extremely well executed precision automotive design and production, the combination of, of, you know, cutting edge innovation on both the software side and the hardware side is really exciting. And I can't wait to see this. this yeah, it's vehicle. great. It's great. I mean, I think for, for Cruise, we're, we're, we're situated uniquely in the fact that we have this combination of, of Silicon Valley and, and Detroit and, and Japan. It really does show that when you design everything from 
the ground up with experts in both fields, you can do some great things. I think it goes under under notice, John, how difficult it is to build a vehicle. And then you add on the, the layer of autonomous to it. And what we're, we're talking about here is, is one of the, the greatest challenges, engineering challenges of our generation. And the fact that we've gotten so close to this moment really speaks to the wonderful people that, that we've been working with, both at Cruise and with our partners. I wonder, especially given the types of technologies that we're talking about, you know, not only the, the, the technologies themselves, the radar, LIDAR, and the, you know, the cameras and other really high-tech sensors, but also you know, the brains of the operation and the AI aspects, whether this is also an international competitiveness question for you know, U.S. policymakers to consider. What's your view about that? I think it absolutely is a competitive uh, aspect globally. And I think right now, I'm proud to say that the U.S. is in the lead in that competition. But that lead is not secured. It's at risk. And with it comes risk to national security, comes risk to privacy, comes other risks in terms of who is actually putting the technology out there and how is it spreading throughout the world. I think competition globally is a wonderful thing. I think there are a lot of global competitors in the automotive space, and I think that makes the industry better. It makes it better for consumers. But what we're really talking about here is whose kind of ethics and values are going to be instilled in that technology? Who's going to really be setting the rules of the road for use of this technology, for who's monitoring the technology? And so I think it's incumbent upon regulators in the U.S. to realize that our lead is not secure in that. Our, our ability to influence those values could be lost at any moment. And I think what we're seeing is that more and more, as, as China becomes more aggressive in this space in particular, that we, we, we feel like the United States should be more supportive. And again, we're not asking for money as an industry, but if you set up this federal framework and these federal priorities, and I know the auto innovators have set out a 14-point roadmap for this, I think that is a great way forward for the United States to maintain its leadership, to really maintain that that investment, that those jobs, that those values that instill all this technology are used in a way that benefits the most people in the most safe way. Wow. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I share your concern and I, and I really do, I, I do think we are at a critical point in the development of this technology. There is such an opportunity as I listen to you for us to accelerate um, the development and the deployment of this technology. And it sounds like one of the most important things we can do is to ensure that we do have a supportive policy framework. And I, I, I'm going to hazard a guess that that is exactly what folks in Europe are thinking and folks in China are thinking. So I, I, do, I do hope that we have you know, an opportunity as we move into a new administration and a new Congress to have that conversation again. I think I think we're at the dawn of 2021, standing on the precipice of something great, and we can do this together. And I, I want people to really walk away with the fact that this industry and government, I think, have an opportunity to really set the stage for the future and to really 
lay that groundwork that becomes the foundation for the next great industry that can bring jobs, that can bring climate change, that can bring safety, that can bring accessibility to it. And so that's why I'm so optimistic. I, I really do think 2021 is the beginning of, of the future for this industry. Well, I I share your optimism and I look forward to being a partner with, with you and others to see it through. I have one last question for you, Rob, and it's a question I get a lot. And so I'm going to ask you, when will highly automated vehicles be commonplace on American roads? I think commonplace, you're looking at a, at a four to five year timeline where most people will be able to see a vehicle, hail a vehicle in a major city. If we're talking where those type of vehicles predominate in terms of maybe a statistic like vehicle miles traveled, we're probably 10 years or, or more away from that. But in terms of being able to access a ride, to get in and feel and touch and experience this technology, I think we're probably around five years away from having that technology available in most major cities in the U.S. And, and sooner, depending on what city you live in. But, you know, it's going to take time. Again, this is one of the diff most difficult engineering challenges of our generation, and the technology uh, is advancing every day. The regulations, I think, are going to advance in that period of time. I think people will be able to feel comfortable that when they do experience this technology, it'll be safe, it'll be validated, it will have the imprimatur that there is somebody with oversight over this industry. And I think all of that will really help the industry become embedded in, in everyday life. Rob Grant, I want to thank you very much for being on The Overtake. It's been a joy talking to you today. Well, thanks, John. This has been wonderful for me. And so I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you. And to our listeners, before we go, I do have a favor to ask. Please like and follow the Alliance for Automotive Innovation on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to The Overtake wherever podcasts can be found. Until next time, thanks for being here.